Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, happy holidays. It's a crazy time of the year. How you doing? You know, the holidays are always stressful. <laughs> I was just telling you before we went on, um, you know, the car battery died with the kids in it, and, you know, stuff like that happens, right? Like, you know plans get interrupted and stuff but we're trying to salvage some holiday spirit in new jersey here the weather's getting cold at least yeah it's uh it's getting pretty chilly here too i mean i know that's uh that's relative i say it's pretty chilly and it's uh, 60 degrees right now i think a lot of people across the country would be very jealous of my my 60 degree and partly <laughs> cloudy weather i have here in phoenix the weather outside uh, is frightful huh <laughs> Oh yeah, frightful. I mean, I mean, some of these mornings we wake up and it's in the 30s, and that's that's no fun. <laughs> but uh, I was also telling you before the uh, recording started that I'm going to be heading back to California to be with family uh, over the holidays, and it is going to be chilly there. Uh, I, I'm a little bit more up north than I used to be now, and so we got potential for snow. We had snow last year. Nice. We'll we'll see if we get it again. On the one hand, fun. On the other hand, uh, my dog is a desert dog. He's not a big <laughs> fan of the snow, of the cold. So that's oh, always a battle. Is, oh, he loves it. He's just a, he's in heaven. My, my dog, when the snow's here, we can take him for a walk. Oh, my God. He's rolling around in it and jumping. He loves it. Yeah, well, mine's a little 10-pound Chihuahua Yorkie mix. And if, if he can find something to complain about, he will. So <laughs> <laughs> different, <right>. different breeds. <laughs> Um, well, we got plenty to talk about, and that's why we're back this week, um, and also with the holidays coming up. So that's why we're doing the back-to-back weekends of podcasts. Uh, plenty more news to talk about, fallout from the winter meetings, uh, trades, signings, and honestly, <laughs> the, the the free agent board is looking kind of bare at this point, and there's not a whole lot of firepower left in the trade market. So we might be in for a pretty quiet start to 2023 between uh, you know between the new year and the uh, start of uh, spring training in late February. So I'm a little bit pre-worried about that. But for now, at least, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, right? It's been yeah. it's been a very fun November, December. Um, let's get on with it. Sweet. Uh, let's start with the biggest trade and potentially the biggest trade that we'll see this offseason. I, I sure hope we see some more fun, big moves, but uh, this might be the biggest we get. It's a three-team deal. The A's finally traded Sean Murphy. Uh, he'll be somewhat surprisingly headed to the Braves. We did hear that they had some interest in him, but it, it never seemed like the most likely landing spot. It wasn't exactly a clean fit. They already had William Contreras and Travis Darno and Manny Pena uh, on their roster at catcher, and so it seemed like a position of strength for them already. So it, it seemed like they were just kind of poking around, seeing if his if his market fell and they could scoop him up on a on a steal of a deal. Um, that, that was at least how it read at first. Uh, but then we yeah. found out that, no, they have pretty serious interest and uh, eventually serious enough to get this deal done. And as part of this, the Brewers actually snuck in here and really got themselves a crazy good deal on this as well. So uh, I'm, I'm just going to start by listing off the players in the trade, where they're going and what their values are. And then I will I will let you take first crack at unpacking, unpacking this, going through kind of your initial reaction when it came out, if you've had any thoughts since then. Yeah. Um, so let's just okay. start, start with the players. Sean Murphy, only player going to Atlanta at $51.3 million in median trade value. Uh, Till Milwaukee, they're going to scoop up William Contreras, also a catcher, at $37.3 million. He comes from Atlanta. 
Uh, also, Justin Yeager comes from Atlanta. At the time of the trade, we didn't have him in the system, uh, but he's a, a lower-ranked relief prospect. 0 .8. And then, Yep, sounds right to me. And then third piece going to Milwaukee is Joel Piamps, who's a right-handed reliever from the A's. He's at 0, 0.0 million, just a depth guy. The A's claimed him on waivers last season, and he's never really been much of anything overpowering in the bullpen. So really just some cheap depth for Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And Oakland, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> they got some players, that, that's for sure. Uh, they, they got left-handed pitcher Kyle Muller at 7.1 million, and right-handed pitchers uh, Roy Salinas at 2.5 million and Freddie Tarnock at 2.2 million, as well as catcher Manny Pena at negative 2.6 million. So that's all that came to Oakland from Atlanta. And then the one piece going from Milwaukee to Oakland is infielder slash outfielder Esteuri Ruiz at 4.9 million. So the way these line up, it's 51.3 headed to Atlanta. To Milwaukee, it's 38.1. And to Oakland, it's 14.3. And so, obviously, three-team trades, there's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that with the ins and outs and, and how things look. But basically, to, to from a raw value standpoint, this is looking like Atlanta paid pretty fair market value for Murphy by giving up Contreras, Muller, Salinas, Tarnock, and Pena, and Yeager. So, they, they, pretty fair deal from their standpoint. And then it looks like Oakland just made a an, a bit of an odd choice in essentially swapping Contreras and Piamps for Ruiz, who we have rated much lower than than Contreras is. So I'll pause there. That's all the names, all the numbers. Uh, John, what was your reaction as this was going down, and has have your thoughts changed, matured at all since this deal has become official? Uh, let's start with my thoughts. Uh, my first reaction, as with most people I know, was. WTF. Like, there's got to be another piece coming from Milwaukee to Oakland, right? No. It can't be if... Okay. So let's break it down from a value perspective, as you just touched on. Atlanta, basically, you know, if you look at what Atlanta got and what they gave up, it was pretty fair, right? Um, if you look at... Break it down into two parts. Let's say, you know, they got Murphy and they gave up Contreras and the other pieces. And if you just look at it as a two-way trade there, it's fair. Okay. Obviously, Oakland didn't need Contreras. So in a way, they flipped him to Milwaukee and with Piops, and then they got back Ruiz. Okay. So Contreras, let's just start with him. He was what, uh, 38 something, right? So he's a all-star catcher, five years of team control, already established in the big leagues. Dude can hit. I mean, they were using him as a DH, and he was not only in the all-star lineup, but in the playoff lineup. He put up a, a slash line of 278, 354, 506 for Atlanta with 138 WRC plus. And he's going to be at a league minimum salary for the next two years in arbitration. If that, you've got five years of that guy. That's worth a lot. So we're pretty confident that that 38 number is, is, is good. So Milwaukee got him and a reliever, and all they had to give up was Estruri Ruiz. At 4.9. That's where the problem is, right? And um, I don't know anybody in the industry who can figure this out. Um, all we can do is pretend we're David Forrest of the A's and read his mind. Because I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, it's clear that they like Ruiz. You know, it's clear that they um, maybe like him too much and think he's going to be a star, 
but he hasn't established himself. He wasn't a highly ranked prospect. He had a terrible debut in the major leagues, putting up a 25 WRC plus, albeit in a small sample size. Yes, he has some skills. Yes, he's got great speed. Yes, he had a breakout year in, in the minors. Okay, good. Um, but parsing that out, what we find is that he didn't really have a whole lot of power, didn't hit the ball hard. Uh, his exit velocities were among the lowest. And so he's basically just like hitting gappers and stretching them out with his speed. So the slugging percentage, even though if you if you if you look at it at first glance, it's like, oh, he can slug. No, he's not slugging. He's he's legging out doubles after hitting a gapper. So um so what they have, what the A's have is a prospect who has speed and maybe some good contact skills, maybe good good bat skills, but no power. Um and they're going to try to make him their new center fielder, even though he hadn't really played it all that much. He was a second baseman and then kind of bounced around like a utility guy. And so, like, that's a big question mark to to put to to trade your best trade piece and then flip another guy who's an all-star with five years of control for Ruiz. And I am dumbfounded. I can't explain it. And I think it's a one-off. I think the A's have to reach to try to get elite talent is all I can figure, but this is really reaching and they've got to cross their fingers, knock on wood that they're right. That's all I got. Yeah. I just, I guess you can, if you, if I really want to bend over backwards, I can think of an explanation here, right? I can think of a case where let's say the A's are just infatuated with one or more of these secondary pieces coming from Atlanta. You know, they're they're just absolutely in love with Roy Bersalinas, and there's there's reason to be excited about him. He struck out a ton of guys in the minor leagues, still very young, could could be a guy that blows up in the next couple of years. Who knows? Right now he's seen as more of a guy with some relief risk. He doesn't have the best command, but guys like that sometimes they're just a tweak away from being the next big pitching prospect. Okay, cool. Same similar sort of deal with Freddie Tarnock. He's a bit closer to the bigs more likely as a reliever because he's a little older, a little closer to the bigs and hasn't figured it out yet, but maybe they just think he's going to be a wipeout closer or, or maybe they think they can tweak something and make him a starter, or maybe they love Muller, whatever the case is. Let's say they're just infatuated with a couple of those guys, but the obvious issue with Atlanta is that, well, two obvious issues is one. They, they don't really, they didn't really need a catcher because they had Darno Pina and Contreras. And two, if they're not trading Contreras in this deal, then there really isn't a natural replacement for him unless you're going like Vaughn Grissom and, and maybe another small piece to, to equal that value. And it seems pretty clear that they wanted to hang on to Grissom, which ended up being a smart move for them since they missed out on Dansby Swanson. And now it looks like Grissom might be their starting shortstop going into the year. So if they, if they took Grissom off the table... And it was really Contreras or Bust to make a deal with Atlanta happen. Okay, I can see the A's, you know, if if they were just in love with these secondary pieces, I could see them being okay taking, essentially, taking on Contreras, flipping him elsewhere for maybe a little less than value, but for something else that fits their roster better. Okay, I, I, I'm on board with that. And, and of course... I don't think there's any reason the A's couldn't have just taken Contreras themselves. I mean, yes, they have a lot lot down the pipeline at catcher which is what incentivized them to move murphy they have shay langliers at the big league level they're still giving tyler soderstrom some reps behind the plate they just drafted daniel susak they, they got a lot at catcher in oakland so okay fine maybe you don't want Contreras; doesn't fit a position a need for you and 
we know Oakland likes to they don't they don't want to be planning on a multi-year rebuild here right they want to try and jump back into at least having a capable big league team and hopefully in a contention within the next couple years they're all about that quick turnaround time so okay I'm I'm on board with you so far David where all right now we have this situation where I like these secondary pieces and we need to find a new home for Contreras I cannot even fathom that that was the best return they could have gotten for Contreras, even if they love Ruiz. Yeah, if you love Ruiz, well, great. Get him and someone else. Like, <laughs> I don't know how that was all they could have milked out of Milwaukee. I, I'm i not getting it. And, and it seems to be pretty pretty much a consensus across the industry that his power isn't what it looked like it was last year, that the low exit velos are legitimately very concerning for him. It's hard to be successful if you just don't hit the ball hard, and he doesn't. And even if he has all these other flashy, great tools, unless they really unlock something with his swing there to get him to tap into some more power, it's going to be a real uphill battle for him. And I'm not sure the A's hitting development is exactly the one I'd be trusting with making that big switch for him. So yeah, I... I'm struggling just like you are, John, still to this point. I mean, for the A's and, and for plenty of A's fans that I know, and I guess for myself selfishly, though I'm slowly distancing myself even further from the A's, I hope it works. <laughs> I hope Ruiz is great for them, but there's a reason he was, you know, the secondary or third piece in the Josh Hader trade last year. You know, he, he wasn't seen as this headliner guy, and it's not like he right. did anything massive after joining Milwaukee to improve his stock. So it's it's still just deeply confusing that, like we said, breaking it down, essentially they're, they're swapping Contreras and a couple of arms for Ruiz. It's, it's just confusing. I, I don't know how that happens. Yeah, so the A's obviously so... – Let's back up a step. So our model that we use is trying to correlate to the baseball industry as a whole, like what what team what most teams use, in other words. And most for the most part, we've done pretty well. We've got a ninety five percent correlation rate over three years or so, and so it's validating that you know we seem to be on the same page with most of the teams. What has become obvious in the last year or two since the A's started selling off their pieces is they have a different model. They're not looking at it from the point of view of pedigree or prospect rankings or, or you know, scouting as much as they are. Like, what can this guy actually do? Um, and one example would be if you look at a steamer projection or a zips projection, you'll see Ruiz a little bit higher on that list. You know, like a 1.5 war, for example, maybe, you know, I don't think he's gotten as high as a 2 war estimate. But let's just say it's somewhere in that range of 1.5. Now, if you multiply that by six, six years of control, that's a nine war player. So that's kind of, I think, where they're coming from is they're looking at it like what can he actually produce as opposed to his tools. Uh, so it's called a pro model. And our model is slightly different from that. We Once they get to the majors, we start to factor that in a little bit more, but we start with the prospect pedigree. Um, and so, you know, maybe they're thinking, hey, we've got a nine war player, a, a player that's going to deliver nine war over the, over the next six years, uh, maybe even more. Let's say let's round it up to ten just for fun. So it's a ten war player, okay? So at at you know uh, the way things are going, maybe that's uh, ninety million in field value, and he makes you know forty million in salary, fifty million or so. So there you go. There's your 
40 or 50 million in surplus. That's Contreras is worth. That's the other sort of thing I've been thinking about. Like maybe that's how they saw it. The problem is that's a lot of wishful thinking. Like you, that's a lot of interpreting minor league results, you know, and saying, okay, they are definitely going to translate to the major league level without any sort of risk. It's taking it for granted, you know, um, as opposed to most teams that say, well, there's still a lot of risk. He's got to prove himself first. He hasn't done that yet. So from a probability standpoint, there's a high risk of failure. If you just tack on 50% risk of failure, that 90 million war guy is now a 45 million war guy. And I mean, sorry, $45 million guy. That's a 50%, 50-50 chance of making it. Let's say that's the case. And even so, so that cuts a lot of the surplus uh, down quite a bit. So you're still going to be a little bit low. So my concern on the A's part is maybe they see it that way, but they're not factoring the probability of a bust as much as they should. Yeah, and I, they obviously have a history of, you know, zagging when other teams zig, and it's lazy to just bring up Moneyball every time. So I'm, I'm not going to do that other than to say, hey, don't do that. That's lazy. But, you know, they, they've had times where they make a, kind of a head scratcher of a deal and it ends up working out well for them. I think people were fairly critical when they traded Jeff Samarja to the White Sox and they got back this kind of middling quad A looking package of Marcus Semien, Josh Fegley, Ron Ravello, and Chris Bassett. And then what do you know? Chris Bassett and Marcus Semien were phenomenal for them and Fegley was a decent backup and they really crushed that trade. But for each of those, there's a Josh Donaldson trade. And this one really scares me with, with how much it reminds me of that, of the A's seemingly just being so much higher on a part of the trade than anyone else. And rather than pushing to get equal value in the trade, they just have a guy they're infatuated with and they pull the trigger to get him. And the entire deal rides on him. And if it doesn't work, then they just gave away an all-star for nothing that that's that's the way it was with josh donaldson and franklin mm -hmm. barreto being the centerpiece coming back and i guess to a bit of a lesser extent brett laurie being included there as well mm -hmm. and that's how it kind of feels with this one with with how much they're really banking on ruiz here yeah you know so the other insight um, theory i might have let's just say so there were multiple reports that the a's had been talking to the cardinals um and it, you know, at first it was like a huge package of of major league, you know, guys who had made their major league debut or thereabouts, um, like Newt Barr, Donovan, maybe Dylan Carlson, so, you know, maybe Burleson, you know, some package of those um, with a pitcher like Graceffo. And at first it was reported that it was two of those guys and Graceffo, I think Nolan Gorman might have been another option. Um, and then more recently, I said, oh, no, what they meant was one of those guys and a pitcher like Graceffo. And so my point is that would have met been fair value if it was one of those guys like a Dylan Carlson or uh, a Newt Bar. I think the problem the A's had with that was those guys are regulars. They've proven they can hit major league pit pitching, but they're not stars. And what the A's wanted was a star. And so they would rather gamble on what they think might be a star than settle for like a high floor guy, like a new bar or a Carlson. So, you know, and you can criticize them for that, but that's the choice they made. And it's really going out on a limb uh, relative to what the rest of the industry, because it could very well bust. But I think that's what they were thinking. Yeah, I have that article pulled up now. It was 
originally the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that the A's were looking for Newt Barr, Donovan, and Graceffo, and that would have been way over value on our, on, by our model. And so, rightfully, the Cardinals weren't, weren't interested in that. Uh, but after the trade to the Braves, uh, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic clarified that, uh, and I'll, I'll just quote from the article here, and I'll link it in the description, the show notes. However, another source briefed on the talks said the A's want a Newt Bar or Donovan plus Graceffo. The Cardinals were unwilling to trade any of those players and instead wanted the A's to choose two from a group of four consisting of outfielder Dylan Carlson, second baseman Nolan Gorman, outfielder Alec Burleson, and first baseman Juan Yepes. And so if the choice is two of those four guys, you know, I, I think Carlson and Gorman are, are clearly the most valuable of that four. And, and the two of them together, just off the top of my head, might be overvalued for Murphy by our model anyway. But they're also yeah. very flawed players. <laughs> they, they each yeah. have their clocks ticking already. Carlson looks not like a star not like he, he might i mean he's still very young and he's still he's got decent plate discipline but he doesn't quite have the thump you want from a corner guy right. and he had kind of a disappointing sophomore season last year and gorman doesn't have a defensive home this this article says second baseman but that's pretty suspect and so if he might be a first baseman and he might just be like kind of an okay bat for a first baseman not an elite one and then burleson and yepes are further down the list in value so i i'm not I don't take any issue with the A's being uninterested in that type of return for Murphy, but they had to have had other options. It seemed like a third of the league was interested in Murphy. Right. I mean, you, you, you had Houston, which, okay, I'm maybe they don't want to trade with Houston and Houston doesn't line up very well on prospects either. Their farm is pretty depleted. So, okay, maybe we take Houston off the table. They're not, they're interested, but they weren't a serious contender. But the Red Sox, the Guardians, the Rays, the the Giants even, there's got to be at least, you know, taking taking the Cardinals out of the picture entirely, it's got to be, and even, even the Brewers making a deal directly with them. If you really love Ruiz, okay, try and get him and Sal Frelick and another piece or two you like. So there's half a dozen serious contenders for Murphy even even taking out a couple of those fringe teams, taking out the Cardinals, how is this just the best you come up with? <laughs> I yeah, I'm still stuck at at that question of how you just full on green light this. And I guess the other factor is the market itself. You know, the, the free agent market moved pretty quickly this off season. I wonder if the A's were maybe caught a little off guard by that. And you know, it's not necessarily we talk a lot about this and I think we mentioned it exactly in the last episode that it can kind of go both ways. You know, there's maybe some advantage to being the first one off the market. Like Wilson Contreras was for catchers, some advantage to just taking your money while every team is bidding for you. And there's maybe a bit of an advantage to being the last real quality player on the market. You know, if there's six teams that need a catcher and there's only one Christian Vasquez sitting around, then he might get a little bit more because some team just pushes it a little over the edge. But so, so I wonder if the A's maybe felt some of the pressure there of not only, Hey, Omar Narvaez and Christian Vasquez and Austin Hedges and some of these other catchers, they're going to go sign and take some of the teams interested in Murphy off the board entirely. So maybe there's yeah. that pressure as well as the idea that some of the teams interested in Murphy, not, not many of the teams interested in Murphy only needed a catcher. 
So maybe, especially catcher being such a unique position, maybe, you know, if, if the Twins can't get a deal done for Sean Murphy, which would have seemed difficult given their, their prospect situation as well, uh, but if, if Oakland's price they feel is too high for Murphy, then maybe they just feel fine pivoting and going some other direction to upgrade their roster and just bringing in a Christian Vasquez or, or uh, I mean, Hedges isn't a great example. He went to the Pirates, but... Um, the Astros. Who did the Astros get at catcher? Didn't they grab someone? Am I, am I blanking on I something here? I don't think they have, actually. Um, uh, okay, Zunino to the Guardians. There we go. Yeah. The Guardians have some other needs. They just need offense everywhere, and they got have prospects to do it. So if they're just not lining up on a price with Oakland, they don't need to sit around and wait for Oakland to come down to them. They can just go get Zunino, spend a few million there, and trade their prospects for other needs. So I wonder if Oakland just misplayed the market. I wonder if that's part of it here. Uh-huh. I... I think so. do want to mention uh, that a couple of these players in this deal are very interesting, uh, just given the direction baseball is headed with some of its new rule changes. It, it could change how we value some of these players down the line. Uh, Ruiz is, we, we've talked about him extensively. He's lightning fast, and they're making the bases bigger this upcoming uh, this upcoming season, as well as limiting pickoffs. So you wonder if that just helps him run wild in the big leagues even further. And maybe Oakland is excited about that potential. Um, and then the catchers in the deal, Murphy and Contreras, they're kind of on opposite ends of the defensive spectrum. Contreras isn't horrible, but he's he's not regarded as a top defensive catcher by any means. Um, but if, if pitch framing kind of starts to die out, whether it's a fully automated zone or a partially automated zone, you know, the challenge system that's been discussed, then maybe... He becomes a little bit more valuable. Maybe Murphy becomes a little bit less valuable relative to the other catchers in the league just because his his uh, above-average framing is less useful. But then on the other hand, if we're talking about base running, Murphy's arm becomes even more, power, more valuable there because he's got a great arm. He's great at throwing out runners. And if runners are going to be more and more aggressive, you want someone like that behind the plate. So all those kinds of things can go either way. We could talk about the shift and, and other needs, but... Um, I wanted to at least point that out. And the the one last concern I wanted to address that you see all over Twitter, especially if you spend more time than you should on A's Twitter, uh, you'll see the, the doom and gloom, the, oh, Fisher's just burning things to the ground before they move to Vegas and all that. And I don't know, the way things have gone, it's easy to be pessimistic about the A's future. The stadium deal doesn't seem to be going all that well. Not, not not that I'm saying they're headed to Vegas or anything, but things aren't going as well as they would like, that's for sure. They just got kind of screwed in the draft lottery at the winter meetings. They could have... They, they had the second worst record in baseball last year, and because of the lottery system, they ended up with the sixth pick. When any other season in baseball history, they would have picked second overall, and so that's... That hurts, especially for a team that's had trouble converting first-round picks into success the last handful of years. So there's a lot to maybe not be thrilled about with the A's, but I don't. I think it's way too far in the tinfoil hat direction <laughs> for me yeah. to, for you to, for to be saying that they're intentionally tanking a trade like this to just ex- expedite the move to Vegas or anything like that. Yeah, um, I just want to underscore one of the points, and then we'll move on. Um, I do think uh, David Forrest, the HGM, misplayed the market. You know, I imagine that um, he could have gotten a, a fairly 
good package directly from the Guardians or directly from the Rays with their strong farms. Um, maybe they didn't line up for whatever reason, but from a value perspective, those had the potential to be fair deals and not take too much of a dent out of those teams' farms. I mean, I think they would have been, you know, they wouldn't have been painful. They wouldn't have wiped out the farm. They would have, they've got enough prospect capital on each of those teams to do so. Um, and, and, and I don't think he played the market well in terms of telegraphing his moves. I, I do think you may have a point about um, when Contreras signed, you know, he got a little, you know, um, he got a little nervous maybe because that might have meant the other free agent catchers like Vasquez and Zanino would have gone off the board and left him hanging. So I think he had to move and take the deal, and I think he just liked Ruiz. But you don't play poker that way. I'm sorry, you don't show your hand as well as much as he did. And I'm concerned that other GMs, uh, maybe taking advantage of this because, you know, again, no one in the industry thought this was a fair deal from that standpoint. Even when you look at Brewers, um, you know, articles written from the Brewers perspective and their beat writers, they're like, hey, we just got an all-star catcher, five years of Contreras and two pitchers, and we gave up our eighth prospect. And that was it. <laughs> like, hello? Like, that's, I mean, everyone's praising Matt Arnold as a genius now, you know, and like, that's like, that just doesn't make – even to Brewers fans, that doesn't make sense. So I do think Forrest got misplayed. Yeah. Uh, there's a handful more things I want to hit on from this trade. I know we've spent almost a half hour talking about just this one, but we are baseball trade values, and this is the first big trade of the offseason. So I think it warrants that kind of discussion. Um, one last point from Oakland's perspective, and then I do want to go a little bit further on the Braves and the Brewers since we have really been Oakland-focused on this so far. Um, for – Oakland, they've really been picking up a lot of pitching the last couple years. And I think I think Melissa Lockard of The Athletic might have pointed this out in one of her articles. Um, that they just have really a, a treasure trove of not, not top-tier arms or anything like that, but a whole bunch of arms they've brought in on deals. The Joey Estes and Ryan Cusick from last year's Matt Olson deal. Uh, JT Ginn from the Chris Bassett deal. Uh, Gunnar Hogland from the Matt Chapman deal. Uh, these couple, these few arms from this deal, uh, Muller, Tarnock, and Salinas from the Frankie Montas deadline deal. They got JP Sears and Ken Waldachuk, as well as Luis Medina. Uh, they had, they had a handful of other arms in the system. There's a couple higher minor arms, Zach Logue, Adrian Martinez, Adam Aller, uh, but just, just a boatload of arms. And obviously they could hang on to all those guys. Uh, there's no such thing as having enough pitching and it's a wide range of guys there. You know, you're not, you're not trading Adam Aller for anything of value right now. And they're probably not too interested in trading Ken Waldachuk for anything right now. So there, there's a wide range there within those arms, but uh, it was also reported after the trade and after, you know, a couple of those, their free agent signings of uh, Ledmis Diaz and Jace Peterson were announced. Uh, Forst was vocal that they want to add more that they have more moves that they want to make. They want to add some more major league starting pitching. They want to potentially add another bat or two. And I wouldn't be too surprised if we saw them deal from that pitching. We've seen them do that in their rebuilding years. Even they'll trade prospects to address positions of need. We saw it with the Chris Davis deal a handful of years back, things like that. So just wanted to mention that something to keep an eye on there. They might move from some of that pitching depth that they have now. Um, but then I want to pivot real quick to the Brewers and Braves sides of this deal. Uh, we already talked about how much of a steal it is for the Brewers, but I think it's just a really fun fit there as well, given that Contreras has had some defensive questions and Milwaukee has done really well at converting questionable 
defensive catchers into valuable backstops. Omar Narvaez is just the latest case of that, where he was pretty regarded as an all-bat, no-glove, can't-frame, can't-block catcher, where he's more of a DH than a catcher, and then he goes to Milwaukee, and now he's an excellent framer. Uh, they did something similar with Yasmani Grandal. I, I think there's another name I'm missing there, but they have a track record of, of success, and this was widely reported on. I'm not I'm not noticing anything breaking here, any, anything new, but um, it, it's, a, it's a good fit for Contreras just as a player, that he can go somewhere where he might continue to develop as a catcher and become uh, potentially even a positive defender behind the plate. And then from Atlanta's perspective, I wanted to ask you, given what's going on at shortstop there, you know, they, they clearly weren't too involved in the market for any of Correa, Turner, or Bogarts. And a couple weeks after this deal, or after the Murphy deal, uh, it was, uh, they, they ended up losing Dansby Swanson to the Cubs. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but given their kind of empty hole at shortstop and potential needs in the outfield and other spots on their roster. What do you think of their decision to use most of their trade resources on upgrading at catcher, which seemed like it was kind of already a set position for them? Yeah, that is a bit of a puzzle. I mean, granted they have three years now of Murphy and only one more year of Darno. They, and then they got rid of Pena and Contreras. So they're now down to two catchers and, you know, um, reading between the lines, they've probably recognized some um, some aging in Darno. They were using him as DH and, um, a bit, um, and I think maybe the idea is to have Murphy be the primary catcher and Darno be the second catcher slash DH. So you figure maybe Murphy catches you know a hundred ish, hundred and ten or so games, and Darno catches forty, fifty. I don't know, something like that. They'll work it out. <clears throat> um, but you know, the other thing is since they do have a shortstop hole. You know, it does kind of suggest that Von Grissom is going to get a shot there. Um, I don't get the sense that they have a lot of confidence in that, though, because they were playing him at second. You typically don't see young players being played at second and then moving to short, especially if they're more of a bat-first kind of guy like uh, Grissom seems to be. Like, I don't get the sense that he's like a fabulous defender or anything. And so it's quite a bit of a stretch to think, well, all of Swanson's elite defense is gone, and now you're getting a kid who may not be a shortstop there. In addition to which, he had after his hot start, he kind of cooled off a bit with the bat. And granted, it was a small sample size, but you got the sense that pitchers were starting to figure him out. So now you may have a question mark there from a glove standpoint and potentially from a bat standpoint too. And knowing the Braves and now they, they tend to signal their moves, I wouldn't be surprised if they went out and got an Elvis Andrus or somebody like that that's left on the shortstop market just to make sure. I have a funny feeling that's going to happen. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> um, they still have such a strong team, and it's it's fun to kind of see the uh, the dogfight between them and the Mets, and the Phillies are still obviously making plenty of noise in the East. I, I you You would really think they'd... And they would have ended up with someone better at shortstop than either a questionable Grissom or stooping down to Andrews, Jose Iglesias, someone in that range. There's not really much of a trade market for shortstops right now. I mean, they can go get Isaiah Kiner-Falefa if they really want. I don't think they do. <laughs> so, I don't know, especially given the way that team has so successfully locked up all of its young players at below market rate contracts. I 
thought that Dansby would be the one guy that they just hand the market value to and let him be kind of their their guy, their more expensive guy. Well, you know, he's making twenty five million a year for the next few years, while a bunch of their potentially even better players, the the Cunhas, Albies, and Olsen, Riley, so on and so forth, those guys are making a lot less than that. And then by the end of Swanson's contract is when they're all starting to get expensive and you kind of deal with that when that when you get to that bridge, I guess. But I don't know. I thought Swanson was going to stay there. I guess uh, it seems like the Braves fan base had a much different read on it. Like they, they kind of resigned themselves to him being gone as soon as he hit free agency. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a whole lot of words yeah <laughs> do you no, have anything I, else I, about this deal i don't I, think else i can figure is maybe grissom could be moved to left field because ozuna looks like he's mostly done and he's got some other issues so that's another possibility you know and maybe they i don't think orlando arcia has much confidence uh, as much uh, chance of being their starting shortstop i think they need to fill it with what's left over um i don't think they I think they look at things holistically to answer your first question. Like Murphy's probably going to add a couple of uh, wins, um, like a couple of wins there versus a couple of wins at shortstop. Like they also have to stick to pretty tight budgets since they're owned by a public corporation. So I think maybe they figured, okay, we're not going to be able to play in the big shortstop market. And so you didn't see them really playing in that market. And so maybe their sort of zigzag move was, okay, we're going to get wins out of the catcher upgrade. And then, you know, backfield for shortstop with, a, you know, Andres or Iglesias or whoever, just to kind of hold the fort down. And maybe it all works out that way. And maybe you move Grissom to the left field and you get a couple more wins there than you would have out of Ozuna. And so net, net, you've, you've, you've done your job. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's a pretty fair read on it, especially since it is a very weak trade market. There's just not many, you know, dedicated sellers a lot of the the lesser teams from last season have actually been pretty aggressive buyers when you look at the Cubs, the Rangers, teams like that. And so you got the A's who are already pretty empty. <laughs> you know, Murphy was really their last big piece they could move. And then the Pirates, it seems like they're hanging on to Reynolds. They're at least mm-hmm. asking just a sky-high price for them. So even if you think he fits your roster better in Atlanta, maybe you can't get him. And that's another team that's already pretty stocked at catcher. So mm-hmm. Contreras isn't going to be an attractive option for them either. Mm-hmm. And, and beyond those guys, there's not a lot. The Reds don't have anyone interesting, really, that they're they're ready to trade. The, the Marlins are in a weird spot. Nobody really knows what they're doing. There's just not a lot else on the trade market. So, yeah, I guess if you're just in kind of a maximize value type of position like they are, and, and all it cost them to make this trade was... Yeah, they upgraded from their three-ish win catcher to a five-win catcher. Mm-hmm. And all it cost them on top of that three-ish win catcher was kind of some spare parts, you know, some pitching depth, yeah. some a couple lottery tickets, and, and that's it. And keep in mind, Murphy's salary this year, I think, is, what, $3 million, something ridiculously low. So, like, from a budget standpoint, by upgrading there, you, you know, have some more money to spread around. And keep in mind, they might save some for the trade deadline as well. So they're looking pretty good financially. I think they've, you know, uh, they've got some room to spare there. Um, and then circling back to your other point, yes, I think the trade market it doesn't have outside of Reynolds, who may or may not go. There's not a lot you can point to and say, yeah, he's going to get moved, and that's a big name. There's just some like other situations, like the Rays were always active. The Guardians still have 
what looks to be like a roster crunch, like too many middle infielders. So you got to think one or two of those guys gets moved. The Reds are saying something similar. They've got too many shortstop prospects and looking for outfielders. The Diamondbacks have too many outfielders. So it's going to be a lot of sort of like moving and shaking on those fronts more so than the big names. Yeah, definitely. And you would immediately think that maybe the Guardians and the Braves could line up on on that infield issue. But A, I'm not sure the Braves have a ton that would be immediately attractive to the Guardians. And B... Reports seem to be that the Guardians would rather hang on to Ahmed Rosario. They're, yeah. I don't think they're moving Andres Jimenez. And so yeah. if they're also not moving Rosario, then you're just looking at prospects. And it's not yeah. too different from the situation you're already in with Grissom. So I don't know if there's as much incentive for the Braves to make a deal like that. Yeah. Fair point. Well, there's that deal. Uh, very briefly, just while we're talking about these teams, a couple of them made other transactions. The uh, the Brewers picked up Owen Miller from the Guardians in exchange for cash considerations. A uh, player to be named later or cash, actually. And uh, Marco Felici- Mario Feliciano, former top-catching prospect for them, was DFA'd in that deal. So just a minor deal. They picked up a, a real utility depth guy in Miller on the cheap. Good for them. Um, and the A's picked up Trevor May, right-handed reliever, for a one-year $7 million contract. So he'll probably get some late-inning opportunities with them as they try and build his trade value and flip him at the deadline for a prospect or two yeah and on paper that one looks kind of like an overpay may did not have i know he's got a better track record but this last year was not one of his best so um but look relievers are volatile so they're hoping for the best there as well yeah and it's very likely that if you're oakland right now and and you're trying to get a veteran to come join your team you might have to throw him an extra mill or two that yeah i wouldn't be too surprised with that and keep in mind, they are back on the dole. They're getting um, revenue sharing from the league. Um, and with the Mets overspending so much, you got to figure that pool has been growing a little bit. So they're basically playing with house money. <laughs> it's just like, it's not, okay, they throw in an extra million. It's not a big deal. They basically gave him a $1 million signing bonus with a $6 million salary. And that's basically, you know, house money. So, okay, fine. All right, very last point about that trade. You mentioned how dirt cheap Murphy is. I just want to point out the A's actually added salary in that trade by switching out Murphy for Pena. Pena was making a little bit more than him. And uh, yeah, Pena just comes in as a backup for them. They wanted some, a veteran with experience to help out with Langoliers in his first big league season. So that's all that that was. And so you got to figure the A's are pretty much, you know, taken how many Braves prospects between the Olsen trade and the Murphy trade like someone godly amount they basically wiped out the braves farm and the you know guys who weren't even you know aside from the guys like grissom who were promoted you know they've basically taken that sort of middle to lower tier and you know eaten a big chunk chunk of it and moved it moved it over to oakland including christian pache and langoliers and other guys like that yeah definitely it's they they have a relationship there and we'll we'll see if it's a mutually beneficial one or if anthopolis is just fleecing the a's left and right well only time will tell all right let's move on to some of these other deals a couple other small trades uh the dodgers acquired right-handed reliever jp fire eisen from the rays in exchange for left-handed pitcher uh jeff belge uh belge is a prospect at 0.2 million and fire eisen's a bit of an odd case uh so he had been dfa'd by the rays because he had just undergone shoulder surgery and so we actually missed the shoulder surgery. We uh, didn't adjust his value for it. 
Uh, prior to the shoulder surgery, we had him at 6.9 million because he was looking like a very good reliever. Uh, and so if he were at 6.9 million, this deal would have been a major overpay by the Rays. But after knocking him down pretty heavily for the surgery, he's going to miss a lot of time and there's a lot of risk when he comes back. Uh, he's down to 2.4 million in trade value. So just a minor overpay by the Rays. And uh, it's it's just a typical, they had to cut somebody. They're going to lose some value. They picked off an arm that they like in Belge and moved him elsewhere. Whereas the Dodgers have a little 40 space, I guess, and are willing to gamble on fire ice and his rehab. And they do that a lot, right? They did that with Jimmy Nelson and Danny Duffy, and they will take a talented arm who's on the IL um, and wait it out basically and see if they come back healthy. So I don't know. It's just one of their classic moves. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing the Rays can't really afford to do with the way they're pumping talent through their system and always have a 40 man crunch. They can't really afford to hold a guy on their, on their roster. Who's got that because once, once the season starts, the Dodgers can shift fire ice and over to the 60 day injured list. And he's no longer occupying a 40 man spot, but during the off season, he does. And so that leads to a, an off season crunch for the Rays as they try to protect all their prospects from the rule five and, Dodgers have a great system as well and always develop notable prospects, but they just haven't haven't quite had the same issue and the same crunch every year as the Rays do. Yeah, I think it's just smart roster management on both teams' parts, so they do what they do. Yeah, I'd be remiss to criticize too much of what either of these organizations do. All right, last deal, again, very minor. Red Sox acquire right-handed pitching, uh, right-handed pitcher Wyatt Mills at 0.2 million from the Royals in exchange for right-handed pitcher Jacob Wallace at 0.4. Nothing really to say there, just a, a swap of a couple arms. I believe Wallace was DFA'd, and so yeah, just just shuffling around as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's there's one more transaction I want to talk about before we get to the free agents, and it's actually kind of att- attached to a free agent. Uh, last week we talked about the Red Sox signing Masataka Yoshida. Uh, I believe we talked about that last week. Uh, outfielder from overseas and how there's some controversy about whether they overpaid for him or not. Um, but as as part of them officially signing him this past week, uh, they needed to create a, a room a spot on their 40-man roster. And to do so, they designated Jeter Downs for assignment. And... Downs is a big name because of the trade he was in. He was one of the main pieces coming back from the Dodgers in the Mookie Betts-David Price deal. Uh, the, the full return there was Downs, Alex Verdugo, and Connor Wong. And it's interesting. Downs has been... He, he was traded to the Dodgers um, originally in a big, weird salary dump trade with the Reds a few years back. And... He wasn't the primary return of that Betts deal by any means. Uh, the primary return was Verdugo. He was the biggest piece. And then the second biggest piece was getting out from some of David Price's contract. Um, but but he certainly was a big name there. And it's just notable that already, he, you know, he only got a bit of a cup of coffee in the big leagues in 2022. But he just hasn't been able to hit the ball with consistency. He's been striking out too much in the minor leagues as well as in his brief big league stint. And so uh, the Red Sox are already ready to move on from him. And so what they're left with is Verdugo, who's not quite looking like a superstar, (laughs) and Connor Wong, who's kind of looking like a backup catcher at best. And obviously they only gave up a single year of bets, and they offloaded some of Price's contract in that deal. But 
isn't looking like the best return uh overall for that uh for that trade and this is kind of kind of an exclamation point on that kind of similar to uh we discussed when lewis brinson was finally dfa'd by the marlins and what that meant for their you know kind of the conclusion of the uh christian yelich deal this isn't quite that since both wong and verdugo are both in the in the organization but it's just kind of an indication that maybe that trade didn't work out you know i think it's a little bit unfair to just and and i'm not saying to you i'm saying uh, i saw a lot of twitter uh fans kind of you know making that same point like oh we got hosed oh we got nothing back um and they're not thinking about it in the ways we think about it like mookie only had one year left he was about to make 27 million dollars or whatever price's salary was a big burden on the red sox so a lot of money went that way and um and that was one of the major motivations for the red sox because they were sort of changing course at that point realizing that they were headed for call it a soft rebuild and they were just bringing in i'm bloom and they wanted more efficient spending after dombrowski so it was all kind of a change of direction right and the money mattered right so and they realized they couldn't extend bets because they were taking that direction partly that's the reason and so they had to kind of just you know between offloading the money they had to get what they could for it you know uh, for bets and they you know on paper at the time it looks like they got a, a reasonably good deal because verdugo was fairly highly uh, rated in our system at the time i think he was like in the high 40s um you know and um and downs and wong were sort of you know downs i think had some like maybe in the teens and then wong was maybe three or four so so that was a decent prospect uh pro- excuse me package for one year of a high priced bets and getting out from from prices uh in a deal um i think the main thing sort of the takeaway is like um Dieter Downs was traded twice first from the Reds to the Dodgers and then the Dodgers to the Red Sox in this deal and I've noticed a pattern and you probably have as well Josh where you know if you're a prospect you've been traded twice that's usually a bad sign that generally means whoever traded for you generally says yeah we can probably live without this guy which also by the way doesn't bode well for Asturi Ruiz who's now been traded twice as well um, but, you know, Taylor Trammell comes to mind. All these other guys, um, you know, if you've seen them being traded twice, that's not a vote of confidence. So so the writing might have been on the wall, in other words, with Jeter Downs. Like, the Dodgers didn't think he was in great shakes. Um, so I think that may have been, uh, you know, maybe the first sort of signal that not all was well in his camp. And he hasn't done much since. So, yes, they blew it on Downs. Uh, Verdugo also had a bad year. He started out okay, but, you know, he's a two-war player at best. He's not a superstar. But they got some productivity out of him. So you have to look at what's been consumed to that point as well, even though he he doesn't have a whole lot of trade value now. So, yeah, you could sort of look at it and squint and say, yeah, they didn't get that much money. But their objectives were different at the time. And they, they got decent value at the time, even though this one didn't work out. Yeah, and I think, you know, this, any trade, any big trade, anything with money requires some nuance when discussing it, and that nuance often gets left by the wayside when discussing said trade on Twitter. (laughs) But yeah, you need a lot of nuance here no matter which perspective you're coming at this from. I think it's very easy to say, wow, look, Betts is a star and and they don't have any stars back in this trade, so they lost. And it's also very easy to say, by a pure dollars per war, they probably won this trade. (laughs) You know, if you're just looking at the amount of money they offloaded with price and 
they only had one year of bets remaining under control, and that one year ended up being the shortened 2020 season, so he only put up 2.8 wins in that season by Fangraphs, and so you can do the math there that Verdugo has outproduced him for a fraction of the salary, and look, he still has years of control, and so does Wong, and wow, they won the trade, plus they got out of the price money, whatever. I think both of those takes are probably wrong. <laughs> Um, it's a very complicated situation. It's not even as straightforward as, well, yeah, they made a good value trade, but they shouldn't have had to make it because they should have just signed bets. There's, I, I've talked to some Red Sox fans who are pretty dead set that bets was just never going to come back. Even if they had offered him the same contract, the Dodgers signed him to, he just wasn't going to sign it. He didn't want to stay in Boston. And at that point, there's only so much you can do, right? Um, obviously there's a grander pattern to maybe take issue with here when it comes to bets and then Bogarts and we'll see what happens with Devers. And so when you evaluate it from the whole, then maybe that informs kind of your opinion on it a little bit more, but it's a, you have to evaluate the trade with some nuance and everything that went into it. And so, yes, I, the Red Sox of course are not happy that Jeter Downs flamed out for them and, doesn't look like he's going to be a contributor for them going forward. And they also probably aren't too happy with the type of player Verdugo is looking like. And, and same with Wong. But I I think it's there's a lot more to it than, wow, they got fleeced. They lost the trade here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it sticks in my craw a little bit whenever I see analysis that doesn't include the bigger context, the money, the strategy of the team at the time. They're just looking at, oh, look what we gave up. Look what we got, ah. You know, that's a little too lazy. So I, I I don't like that. I'd rather sort of look at the whole picture. Agreed. That's what we're here for. All right, let's look at some contracts now. A uh, couple big ones. Really, most of the big names are off the board at this point. Uh, let's start with the biggest one. The Giants signed Carlos Correa to a 13-year, $350 million contract. Uh, this is just continuing the trend that we already talked about extensively on the last episode with teams just extending these contracts out, you know, and it's, it's kind of a win-win for everyone. The player is happy. They get a longer-term deal, more security. Uh, they, you know, Correa is not going to, unless he's <laughs> becomes like a first ballot Hall of Fame type throughout the rest of his career and really remains exceedingly productive throughout this deal i don't think he's going to be worrying about his next contract i don't think he's going to be signing another free agent contract unless things go incredibly well um so really he's just done after signing this deal and so that's good for him and for the giants they get to spread out that big guarantee the big 350 million dollar guarantee over a longer time period and by the time we get to year 10 11 12 13 the average annual value on this is not going to feel like a ton i don't think if if league revenue continues to increase at the rate that it is, if inflation continues at the, at the rate that it is, then whatever it is here, I'm, I'm struggling to do math off the top of my head. I think it's like in the high 20s as the AAV on this one. Uh, um, yeah. That's not going to feel too significant. I, I pulled up a calculator. I'm putting it in 26.9, roughly. Yeah. That's yeah. not going to feel like a big deal in 2033. <laughs> like, that's not going to be... Unless things go terribly wrong, that's not going to be right. absolutely pigeonholing the Giants. They can't add anyone else because they're playing, paying that to Carlos Correa. Yeah, and you know our model accounts for inflation, so the price per war continues to go up by 2033. Just to use your example, it's you know it's going to be 
in the like fifteen dollars per war range, you know. So um twenty six point nine when he's making that money, he'll be a little underwater at that point to be thirty eight and then thirty nine and then forty, you know, he's gonna be declining at that point if age is any if history is any guide. Um but you know there's a lot of surplus on the front end, which is the whole point of these deals, right? Get it get your surplus now and then you pay the piper later. Um I do think the one thing that worries me a little bit about this is that Correa has been a little bit inconsistent performance-wise, but more importantly, he's had some injury troubles, particularly a lower back issue that may get worse as he gets older. So um, basically, enjoy him while he's healthy, you know, Giants fans, while he's 28, 29, 30, because you're getting the best of him then, and down the road, it's not going to be so pretty. Yeah, and it's also not the cleanest fit from a ballpark perspective. You know, this is a right-handed hitter. It's a, that can be a tough spot for right-handed hitters. Um, especially his power dipped a little bit this last year. So yeah, it's, I don't think it's, I don't know. I think giants fans should be happy. They got him. I don't think it's necessarily the safest contract in the world. Yeah. Um, but they got their guy. They've, they finished in second on how many big free agents, big trades, whatever. And I think they just needed to, they just wanted their guy. They wanted to get him, and maybe they overpaid a little bit to get it done, but they, they got it done. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I just started one at two points. One is from a valuation standpoint, um, and I'll, I'll call these out as we go. Um, it's a little under, but not, not terribly so. We have a fair value for him based on our estimates at 338.6, and he's making 350. So it's under by 11.4, which is a little less than a year. Yeah, you know, one million per year. So that's basically a fair deal, and that's factoring the fact that you know he's he's a star. So you get stars get a little bit of a premium. Um, but which is my second point, which is I think the Giants needed a star. I think last year kind of showed um, the old core is gone, and we're getting a little sleepy. Like who's gonna? The fans weren't coming as much. Like who's the draw here? So they needed a draw, and you can saw them in the judge market. So I think they needed a star. So that was a big motivation. Yeah, and I want to make it very, very clear on this deal, as well as all of the other lengthy ones, the Trey Turner, the Xander Bogarts, uh, all of that, that you are going to see some fluctuation in these players' values on our site. If Correa comes out and is on fire, just hitting 350 through the first month of the season this upcoming year, the model's going to react. And because we're extrapolating over such a large period of time, we're not saying that a month of performance like that meaningfully changes his projection and what we actually perceive of him. But if it's even a 10th of a win of a change and it gets extrapolated down the line of a 13 year contract, that can kind of build a little bit and that can, can, that can lead to some influence in, in how his value swings. And it goes the other way as well. If he is cold out of the gate or injured or anything like that, it's going to affect him his his grand total surplus value pretty considerably. We've seen that with Trout, right? Where yeah. for a while there in 2021, Trout was just hotter than anyone we'd ever seen. And then he was injured and it tanked and tanked and tanked and he went underwater at one point. And then in 2022, he went up and down a little bit, finished the season hot, and now he's in the positive again. And yeah. we see that with these big long-term mega deals there's going to be some fluctuation just because we're extrapolating over such a large period of time yeah and the other thing is with these shortstops you know they may get moved to second or third 
you know, especially as they get older, right? Because you don't see a lot of 35-year-old shortstops. Brandon Crawford is a bit of an exception, but he had it down here as well. So so it's generally not. You remember Cal Ripken Jr. had to move from shortstop to third. Alex Rodriguez moved from short to third. It happens all the time, typically right about 30 or so. So these shortstop cons, you have to bake that in a little bit and kind of discount for that. Uh, but the second thing is, you know, Nobody can really predict the future, not even the teams who are making these deals, not even the agents who are promoting these deals. You know, you know what, what is the decline pattern? You look at history, but every person is different. Everybody ages differently, right? So you can look at historical aging curves, and that's what we do when we apply them. But another team might say, yeah, you know, take another point off here, give another point there, like in year 12 or whatever, like, you know, at that point, you're just making it up, right? So we have to kind of stick to sort of basic assumptions here. But my point is, those are going to vary as well, in reality. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to Dansby Swanson. We talked about him a bit. Uh, but let's get a little bit further here. He signed a seven year $177 million deal with the Cubs. Uh, that takes the last shortstop off the board here. We're getting reports that the Dodgers were in but never made an offer. The Red Sox were monitoring the market. The Twins pushed for him. Uh, the Twins really lost this offseason so far, huh? <laughs> but <laughs> I digress. Uh, Swanson to the Cubs, seven years, $177 million. Uh, What does the model think of this contract? And what do you think of the Cubs' grander plans as a whole, both in terms of this offseason and just kind of what they've done since they since they blew yeah. up that 2017 title team. So the model actually likes Dansby. Um, we have his fair value at 179 for those seven years versus 177. So very close, only off by two. So that's a fair deal. Um, and I've seen a lot of folks on, on Twitter thinking, oh, this is the ugliest one. It's going to go negative really fast. It's going to look, look bad in a few years. I kind of disagree. Um, first of all, his glove, I think, will hold up his value quite a bit. You know, he's probably the best defender of the big four shortstop that we saw move. Um, although Trey is pretty good, too. Um, so that'll give him – I think he's going to stick it short a little bit longer than, say, a Xander would, maybe even a Correa. Um, so that's going to help his his war because there's higher defensive value when he plays shortstop longer. Um, and his bat really took off. Now, the other thing that surprised me, when you look at the peripherals – for Dansby, you know, you look at his Xwoba, for example, it's been above average. Like, like common sort of most people think, oh, he's, you know, he's not that good a hitter. You know, he's going to hit near the bottom of the order. But after, if you look at the peripherals, he hits the ball hard and he's been above average in all those sort of expected stats, like 337, 332, 354, 350 for the last four years. And I'm like, that surprised me. I didn't expect it to be that high. And so that moves his numbers a little bit because he's, in other words, he has good process and he's a better sort of offensive player than most people give him credit for. So I think that's going to help as well. And that's why our model likes him. As for your question for, about the Cubs, you know, I think a lot of teams have to jump the gun a little bit, especially if, if for a high quality player. And so they might look at next year's free agent market and say, yeah, there's probably outside of Otani, maybe a couple of, there's probably not that much. So grab them now while they're hot and they've got money and they've got a better farm and they've got some guys who bubbled up a little bit, you know, like Morrell and a couple of, you know, and, and Horner had a good year. So like they're starting to put the pieces together of the next core. They're not quite there yet, but they're hinting that they're going to be there maybe by next year and by grabbing a guy like Dansby uh, perhaps a year earlier than they than they're ready to 
is fine because they want to show progress this year, and by the time they're ready to maybe maybe make a run for the playoffs next year, they have them on board already, and otherwise they wouldn't have had another option. So I think it makes sense when you sort of piece it together from those points of view. Yeah, it's an interesting shift we've seen in the last handful of years where teams are now moving to get the free agents before they're good, if that makes sense. They they get like Seeger in the Rangers last yes. year. Yes, Seeger and Semyon yeah. to the Rangers. Even if we go back a little further, Harper on the Phillies, Machado yeah. on the Padres. Yeah. Neither of those teams were necessarily built-in contenders right at that moment, but they got these big names, they got better, and then they added to it from there and became... You know, they faced each other in the in the NLCS last year. So yeah. I, that's definitely a growing trend in the game. And the Cubs, I think they've done some really interesting things. I think they, you know, they get some flack for how they built the 2017 team, right? They They were one of the first and one of the most notorious tanking teams. And there's people who will criticize that and that method of team building, even if it's, you know, more... Even if it works, it might not be your aesthetic preference. It might alienate your fan base, things like that. Um, but I think what they've done since kind of dismantling that team has been really interesting. I think they got decent returns for Javier Baez and Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo. I'm a bit puzzled still by the whole Wilson Contreras thing, but at least they got a draft pick for him. And I, I guess we talked previously about the Astros deal that fell through. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if they have. Uh, that was for that was for Christian Javier. No, no, Urquidy. No, no, Urquidy. Yes, I always mix up the Astros starters, <laughs> um, but I think we'd be looking at them as even a little bit better if they had managed to pull off that deal. And it's not really their fault that they didn't. It's the Astros backed out of it. So I don't know. I think they've done some good things. I think they have an yeah. interesting farm, and I think they're adding interesting big league pieces to it. So good on them. Um, as far as Dansby himself goes, I think he's a case. He, he's a good test case of where we are as a community as you know baseball fans evaluating things like this sabermetrics the the more casual where the more casual sabermetrics base is and that's that's a bit of an oxymoron you know casual sabermetrics um but what i'm getting at is 10 years ago you could base your entire analysis of something like this off of wow, this was probably an overpay because Dansby has a career 94 WRC plus and the only two above average seasons he's had, he had very inflated BABIPs, you know, 350 in 2020 when he had a 115 WRC plus and 348 in 2022 when he had a 116 WRC plus. But now in 2022, that type of analysis just isn't sufficient. That that doesn't paint the whole picture. We have batted ball data. We can see that Dansby's trending in the right direction and that gives him enough of a floor offensively that it leaves him a very valuable player between his base running and defense, even if he is just an average bat. And so that that makes a team like the Cubs comfortable giving him a commitment like this. And there was plenty of interest in him. So it's not like it's not like it's just the Cubs going out on a limb here and handing in this major deal that nobody else was going to match. You know, we saw we saw a couple free agents reportedly get just these moonshot deals that no team came anywhere close to, you know, the Xander Bogarts deal. No, no other team was anywhere close to that one. The Padres just handed it to him to get him to sign kind of thing. I don't think that's what happened here with Dan Speed. There were multiple teams that were interested in him around this price range. And if multiple teams think he's worth this much, I think that should tell you something 
about him as a player and how you should, you know, expect him to, to age and to grow. Yeah. Another point in his favor. Um, look at how many games he played in 2022 in the regular season, 162. He did not miss a game. 2021, 160. 2020, 60 in a game that, in a season that had only 60. In other words, he posts up. He doesn't get injured. He is uh, the the picture of health. He has no injury concerns as far as I know. So he's going, he's your steady Eddie out there. And he also, his presence at short with his good glove means Horner can play and move to second. Horner's got a pretty good glove as well, enough to kind of hold the fort down at short. And so now you've sort of upgraded the second base uh, position as well because Madrigal was not so good there. Um, and he's also hurt a lot. So now you've got solidity with good defenders at short and second who also are surprisingly good with the bat as well. So I think it's a really good sort of team construction move for the Cubs. Yeah, I, I may be mistaken. I think he had some lower body injuries in the few years previous to 2020, earlier in okay. his career. But you are right. He's just been picture of health the last handful of years. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually gives us a perfect segue as well into the next big deal, uh, which is the opposite of a picture of health. <laughs> and that's the Yankees <laughs> signing Carlos Rodon to a six-year deal. Uh, so the total on this one was six years and $162 million. Apologies, I just got the notification that Garrett Hampson has signed with the Marlins on a minor league deal. Shh, breaking news, stop the I, presses. I, I don't know why that has to interrupt anything. <laughs> I, I okay. saw a notification from Ken Rosenthal <laughs> I know, and I too. panicked. <laughs> um, Carlos Rodon, six years, $162 million. Uh, doesn't seem like there's an opt-out here, but there is a full no-trade clause uh, it's it's a really formidable top of the rotation now in New York between Cole and Rodon, and it's it's nice to see them adding on top of their roster. You know, they obviously made the big commitment to Judge, but even after doing that, you know, they were kind of returning the same roster but older that had some issues in 2022 and obviously didn't make it all the way. And you know, if they're going to beat the Astros, if they're going to get over that hump, they needed to add some firepower, and this is them doing that. So from that perspective. I think it makes sense, and obviously Rodon had a booming market. Tons of teams interested in him. Uh, tons of teams interested in all of the top free agent arms. And if the Yankees weren't totally in on Degrom or Verlander, or, or just couldn't get them at their price or anything like that, it makes sense that Rodon would be the guy they go with. Uh, but this is also a guy with tons of risk. You know, he really didn't start to look like a frontline arm until 2021, <laughs> and he doesn't have a consistent track record of either staying healthy or staying good. So I don't know. He's a fascinating, he's, he's in a, in a lot of ways, he's similar to Grom, obviously not quite the same caliber of pitcher as Degrom. And in the last year and a half, two years, he's been more durable than Degrom. but there are some comps there. What, what was your, I don't know. What, what do you think about how this deal developed and how Rodon's market developed where, it seemed pretty likely he was going to get six or seven years despite all these concerns. And what does the model think about this deal specifically? So this deal is actually a little under uh, what we thought. I, we thought uh, our model thinks he's worth 184 million for six years. And that's primarily be, for a couple of reasons. One, um, the last two years, he's been spectacular. 6.2 F war in 2022 uh, on the back of 4.9 F war in 2021. So that's 11.1 total between the two years. 
Um, and if you look at his peripherals, you look at his, because what was 254 both of those years, which is outstanding, way, way above average. So, like, he's a high-quality pitcher. The problem is when you look behind that and you look back to his years with the White Sox before that, uh, he was not good. Like, something changed. I'm not much of a pitching expert, and I haven't followed the details on this one, but he totally reinvented himself and just took off like a kite. And so now you're getting, I think... The reason why Armando likes him because we've got two years of evidence that he's really good, and I think that's why the market wants to pay him because he's really good. Yes, I know we've had some injury; he's had some injury issues, but he's also, you know, to in other words, to put up that those numbers, he's eased some of those concerns a bit as well. You know, at least in my mind, anyway, in the models' mind as well, but also in the in the market's mind. You know, he he put up 178 innings last year. You know, 31 starts after 24 starts the year before. The injuries were sort of now farther back on the calendar. 2020 was dreadful and it was a bad year anyway. 2019 also kind of, a, you know, not there. So you have to really go back a ways before he was healthy for that. But but if you're waiting the last two years as kind of the real road on, then you're getting a star pitcher who seems to be healthy. I'm going to underline the word seems because I don't know the details, but that's what we're looking at. And it seems like he's really matured as a pitcher as well. Yeah. You you look at his Fangraphs page or, or whatever page you're looking at, and you see a very, very obvious uptick in fastball velocity the last two years, and that coincides with him becoming an ace. Okay, so your immediate concern is, oh no, he's using all his bullets now. He's just throwing the ball as hard as he can every time, and that's going to tax his arm the way we've kind of seen with DeGrom. But if you watch him pitch, that's not what he's doing. He is doing the Verlander. He's he starts his his games out a little, you know, at his usual velocity, ninety three ish, ninety four, and then he reaches back when he needs it or late in the game. You know, there was that yeah. almost perfect game that he threw with the White Sox last year, where he started the game throwing ninety two, ninety three, and he was hitting a hundred in the ninth inning. Like that's that's the way he's been working, and you it. wonder if that might be more sustainable, especially for him. Um. Yeah, I, yeah. And... So, so I, I don't want to, like you said, I'm not in any way saying that he's absolutely healthy and gonna just make 30 starts a year over the next six seasons that he's with the Yankees. I think it would be silly for anyone to predict that. But I don't. I also don't think he's the same guy who just couldn't stay on the field for the first portion of his career. I think he's different now. Yeah, and and I don't know what happened, but he totally transformed himself. And you make a great point about how he's pacing himself as well. Um, I used to be a competitive distance runner, and what they call a negative split means you run the second half of the game of a race faster than the first half. You sort of pace yourself, you warm up in the first couple of miles, and then you put on the and you put on the jets. And you see this at Olympic racing as well, where the guys will sort of like just phone it in for a bit, and then they get going, and then they really get going, you know. And that's kind of what, what Rodon is doing, and and I think it's a great point in Verlander as well, especially as you get older, it makes sense to kind of ease into it and then turn on the jets. So I, I love that analogy. I'm also just curious, and we're we, we're at the point where we've gotten through the big, big contracts. There's a few more and a few kind of tiers of guys I want to discuss, but we can start to wrap up here. Um, Carlos Rodon at six years and $162 million, or Chris Bassett at three years and $63 million? I know those aren't quite equivalent <laughs> pitchers. Bassett's older. He's also not the same caliber of arm as Rodon. Rodon really looks like a frontline guy bassett more of a mid-rotation guy he's kind of 
getting by with some soft contact to an extent. Uh, but it, which one of those guys at their price point do you feel better about? Would you rather have? You know, uh, I'm going to go with our model here and say Rodon. Um, now, I will say Bassett, three years at 63, um, is a little bit under what we have in his three years at 68, you know, because he's been also kind of a steady Eddie as well. And, you know, good but not great. Um, but look, there's a scarcity. And I think that's one of the big sort of points about this free agent market as a whole this year is that people, teams will pay up for elite talent that is scarce. And like the Rangers did with DeGrom, like that looked like an overpay. But when you think about the scarcity of elite talent, it starts to make more sense. And so I think that's what the Yankees did with Rodon and why so many teams are interested in him because they can be really diff real difference makers, you know, and if you're going for wins, if you're going for championships, you got to have those difference makers. Um, it's easier to find the mid range guys. I'm not saying Bassett is a typical mid range guy because he's a little better than that. But as you get down kind of the talent curve, there's more abundance, right? So you're not going to pay as much for the mid range guys as you are for the elite guys. At least you shouldn't anyway. And then as you get further down the talent curve, where you're in the one onesie twosie range of war, you know, those are guys are abundant, right? So you don't want to overpay for any of those guys. Um, so I think, you know, uh, from that standpoint, I think Rodon is the better deal. Yeah, I'd agree. I I really like Chris Bassett as a as a person and as a pitcher, mm -hmm. but I think you look at that deal and I don't think there's much room for the Chris Bassett one to end up being like a steal or anything, you know? I, I don't think there's much upside there for him to yeah. be producing thirty five, forty million dollars in value each of those years that he's being paid twenty one. I think there is that chance with Rodone where he's getting twenty seven and he if this is just who he is now, then it's a steal, right? And yeah. if he can stay on the field and and I think that's part of what you're what you're getting at with these top tier players that have the ability to perform at that level, they get a premium. Yeah, and granted, there's more risk with Rodon, as you pointed out, but there's also more reward. And so you're paying for that reward. And yes, you might be squinting and hoping for the best, but that's what's really, you know, in demand is that elite talent, that level. You know, Bassett is fine, um, but there's less variance. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll give you what you're going to expect from him and not much more. Yeah, definitely. Okay, some quick hits here. I have a couple names I want to just throw out there and get your take on. I want to do a quick update on the kind of middle rotation market that we discussed last time, as well as some bats and if, if we have time relievers. Um, very quickly, though, Andrew Benintendi getting five years and $75 million. What do you think about that? Uh, give me a second while I pull that one up. I think it might be a little bit high. Um, based on what he's, I mean, that was my first instinct as well. I think hmm, five years, like, you know, you know, uh, yeah. Um, so we have fair, fair value for five years of him at 65.4 and he got 75. So it's been overpaid by about 9.6 on a year basis. It's like by eh, close to 2 million per year. So it's not crazy, but five years of Ben attendee, um, you know, he's a contact guy, not a lot of power. He's okay, but he's a left fielder. He's just okay. He's just sort of mid, you know, <laughs> like the kids with these. He's just sort of mid. Uh, so I don't want, I don't, I don't know if you want to overpay that much for him. Yeah, it didn't really move the needle that much for me. Yeah, I, I swear I don't have anything just personally against Benintendi, but like, wow, since the very beginning of his career, I've just thought people overrated him. And it seems like it just continues. Like <laughs> 2022, he was pretty good. 
I'll I'll give him that. He I don't know if he actually made changes or if he just kind of got lucky. But you know, he's a solid defensive left fielder, but not a center fielder and his defense will only get worse as he ages. It's not going to get better and he's just not an impact bat and I think the White Sox needed more than that and they're handing him the the largest contract in their in their franchise's history. I don't know. I I knew the Benintendi contract no matter what it was was going to feel high to me just because I am pretty low on him as a player, but it it surprised me a little bit that number. Yeah, and you know, we talked about um, in in the past when when he was on the trade market, his sprint speed had been declining year by year pretty pretty clearly. And so you can't really play him anywhere else but left field. At the same time, he doesn't really fit the profile of a left fielder because he's not a power guy necessarily. Like he might hit one here and there, but like, yeah. so you're basically just getting sort of a high average contact guy with, you know, a decent glove for a left fielder. You know, like it's, it's, it's just okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be thrilled with it. Yeah. Um, Okay, looking at that rotation update. Uh, so we had a few more kind of mid-rotation arms sign. Uh, we had Ross Stripling at two years and $25 million to the Giants, as well as Sean Manaya, who I am not seeing on this list. There he is. Uh, also two years and $25 million, also to the Giants. Uh, we had Noah Syndergaard, one year $13 million to the Dodgers. And we had Michael Lorenzen at one year $8.5 million to the Tigers. And if we really want to squint, we can get Ryan Yarbrough into this tier of, uh, let's see, where is your contract, Ryan? One year and $3 million. So we talked last episode about kind of the mid-rotation and and the varying prices we saw there between guys like Martin Perez, Jose Quintana, uh, Jamison Tyone, Taiwan Walker, those two guys kind of at the higher end of it, uh, Kyle Gibson, Zach Eflin, Andrew Haney. And just how, like, these are a lot of guys that really seem pretty similar to us, but they're getting a really wide range of deals. Yeah. Um, from this last batch of looking at Manaya, Stripling, Syndergaard, Lorenz, and Yarbrough, do any of those stand out to you as either a, a nice deal or as maybe a, a bit of an overpay? Or do they all seem fair to you? No, Syndergaard seems like an underpay to me. He's only getting $13 million. He Keep in mind, he got $21 million, I think, last year. Um, so remember, Syndergaard was an ace man he was the guy a couple of years ago when he was on the mets and then he had tommy john surgery which kind of wrecked it in his bad timing because you know it took him a year and ish to get over it then he was a free agent so the angels paid to him 21 million on the off chance that he was going to get good again um but he, and he and he wasn't that good okay i will grant you that but it was his first year back from tommy john surgery if there's anything we've learned watching these things it's that it usually takes a while. It usually takes a year to kind of get your form back and your velocity back. Look at Lance Lynn. He wasn't so much uh, first year after Tommy John surgery. Second year, he took off. And this pattern sort of, we've noticed, repeats itself. So I think second year Syndergaard is going to be worth 21 million according to our model. And he's only getting paid 13. So there's your bargain right there, I think. That is a good deal. for the, And the Dodgers are no dummies, right? And they've seen this pattern as well. So they're like, ooh, Syndergaard for 13? <laughs> Yeah, we'll take that gamble. There's, there's really no downside to that. Even if he's not, if he doesn't improve, you're still getting, you know, based on the way the market's playing, thirteen million as a floor for even a fourth starter is still a good deal. And if you're lucky, he's back to you're close to where he was before as a second starter. So, yeah, all good there. 
Um, I think Stripling was a bit of, I sort of feel like that was an underpay, um, excuse me, an overpay. You know, he had a very sort of up and down career. Is he a reliever? Is he a starter? Well, if he's not, then he's injured. Then he's not good. Then he is good. Like, you don't quite know what you're getting for him. So I think it's a bit of a risk for 2-25. and 25. Uh, Our model has him at 19.5. Yes, he had a really good year. Maybe he's figured it out. So maybe just in time as, you know, models kind of update, you know, the more he can kind of prove that last year was no fluke then that maybe that's what they're they're counting on in San Francisco, that it was no fluke. Maybe he's found something. I think Manaya is what he is at this point. Um, you know, he's kind of a, you know, back-end starter. He's lost some velocity. But it's 26 point – I mean, we have him at uh, 26.8 fair value for two years, and he's at 25. So that's pretty pretty close to on the nose there. So that one's fine. Yarbrough is fine. What does Yarbrough throw? Like 78 miles an hour. <laughs> but he sort of gets the job done sometimes. So it's fine for $3 million. So those are my takes. Yeah, all seem fair. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out with Syndergaard that it was widely reported that he got higher value offers from other teams and yeah. chose a little less money to go to the Dodgers because he knows he wasn't his usual self last year and he thinks the Dodgers can help him. And if yeah. they can, that's scary. <laughs> People should be scared. <laughs> yeah, and that makes a ton of sense on all fronts. So, mm-hmm. sure. so there's your bargain. Yeah. Uh, looking through the hitters that recently signed, um, not as many names here. Uh, Michael Brantley and J.D. Martinez both signed today. Brantley back to the Astros at one year, $12 million. Martinez to the Dodgers at one year, $10 million. Uh, the Orioles signed Adam Frazier at $8 million for a year. Eh. <laughs> the the Blue Jays signed Kevin Kiermaier a year, $9 million. That's It seems like a pretty yeah, clean a fit for them. Yeah. Um, th- those are really the main handful of hitters unless I'm missing some. Oh, Justin Turner just signed with uh, the Red Sox for a, a one-year mm-hmm. deal with like a, with a player option. And um, Joey Gallo to the twins is interesting for sure. And, and maybe we see some trade fallout from that one. Uh, anything yeah. of note on any of those guys? Um, most of them look fair. Turner looks fair. Gallo looks fair. Uh, Jade Martinez looks fair. The one that I sort of struggled with when I was looking at it in the model was Brantley, actually, because he's missed so much time to injury. Like, even if you sort of extrapolate and say, okay, if he had been injured, he would have put up 2.4 war or whatever the number was the last couple of years. And then you say, okay, well, he missed X amount of time. And you sort of extrapolate from that, saying how much time is he going to miss? It's not good. Um, so we're getting, um, you know, I we're getting uh, 8.4 for the one year instead of 12. So it's a little bit of an overpay. Uh, mind you, not that much. Uh, and the Astros can afford it. They just won a World Series. And the owner is making the decision because they don't have a GM. And so the owner just says, okay, fine, pay him $12 million. and Because we like him. He probably fits there. Um, so, you know, they're doing that. They're overpaying a little bit here and there. Uh, so it's fine. But on paper, that's a bit of a risk because, yeah, you can't stay healthy. And I think, as we know, previous uh, injury is the best predictor of future injury. So that's probably what you're going to get. You're going to get some IL time with Brantley. But the others look fine. I think there's an interesting risk-reward thing going on there with Brantley where, you know, the Astros don't necessarily need him (laughs) to be healthy for a full 162 because they are just so deep and so strong otherwise. But if they can get to the playoffs with him at full strength, with him being healthy, then that's big for them. That's a nice left-handed contact bat that really changes their lineup. And he's such a incredible hitter to watch, so consistent, so frustrating to pitch to, I'm sure, <laughs> that 
I think he just he makes an impact for them. So I think it's worth it to them. And as you said, they don't have a GM in place and it's the owner making all these decisions. So if he wants to throw the 12 million, he can go for it. It's his money. But so I think that's a worthy gamble to them. You know, maybe maybe he won't be worth the two wins in the regular season that he needs to be to be worth that 12 million contract or or whatever the calculation comes out to be exactly. Um, But given the kind of lottery ticket you're scratching of if this guy is healthy in the playoffs, that could be kind of a game changer for their lineup. I think that's that's a factor worth mentioning. Oh, no question. And yeah, absolutely. He lengthens their lineup. You put him in the three hole, for example, then you move everybody else down a notch and it's, it's a really, you know, it, there's no drop off, you know, that alone, I think has that ancillary effect. That's good. Definitely. Um, wanted to briefly hit on the catchers as well. We talked about them a lot earlier in the episode. Um, three of them signed or four of them, actually Mike Zunino, Omar Narvaez, Christian Vasquez, Austin Hedges. I don't need to say anything about Hedges. We all know who he is, and he just yeah. gets a year and $5 million with the Pirates to go be himself over there. Good for him. Zunino goes to Cleveland for one year and $6 million. I think he's an interesting bounce-back opportunity for them. And at worst, he's Hedges again, and they did fine with Hedges last year. Uh, but the two I really wanted to focus on, the Twins signed Christian Vasquez for three years and $30 million. And the Mets signed Omar Narvaez for two years, $15 million. It's It's really a one-year deal with a player option, but we can treat it like two years, $15 million. Um, as, as the fallout from that, the Mets are shopping James McCann, which makes sense. He's underwater, though, so they'll have to kick in some money or a prospect or whatever. Uh, but looking at these two deals, I just, I don't know. I might be way off here, but... Wow, I would rather have Narvaez at two fifteen than Vasquez at three thirty. Am, am I out of line on that? Oh no, no, you're. I mean, totally. <clears throat> I mean, and our model just sort of confirms it. Three years for Christian Vasquez, we're pricing at fifteen point eight, and he's getting thirty. Like, what the heck? I mean, because you know, yes, he's a he's a veteran who knows what he's doing. He's got a decent defensive, you know, background, but he's never been much of a hitter. And so there's not that much separating him from any of these other guys who are also sort of veteran defensive catchers. Tucker Barnard's still out there. And, you know, it's, yeah, he's a little better than Hedges, but not that much better than Hedges, right? So Hedges is making $5 million. So three years, you know, I could, could have seen him going up to like 20, but not 30. 30 is an overpay. I'm sorry, especially when you compare it to Narvaez. Narvaez is fine at that price point. More than fine, actually. I'm just picking up the, uh, the the numbers here. Yeah, we have him at 10-1 for a year for a value. He's getting eight because the bat is better. And he's learned to be a, a better defender than, than he was when he first came up. So, yeah, that's a good deal. So, yeah, that's the th- <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing that uh, Vasquez had a very large defensive reputation a very good defensive reputation coming up through the red Sox system he was i think he was like touted as the next yachty kind of a thing like Mm. people were just raving about his glove and it was pretty good at the beginning of his career but it's definitely trailed off as he's gotten older versus narvaez where he's been pretty consistently a good hitter you know he had a down 2020 that was a 40 game sample i'm fine scrapping it 2021 he comes back he's a league average bat which is great for a catcher plus his defense takes a massive step forward he was a three-win player and then in 2022 yeah his bat takes another step back he plays less i don't know if he was injured i'm assuming he was uh but bat takes a step back defense is still pretty good so just given the trajectories of their careers where 
looks like Vasquez's defense is declining as he ages, whereas Narvaez is getting better. And I think I'd bet more on Narvaez's bat going forward than Vasquez's. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just re-saying a lot of the same things you just said, but <laughs> I agree. I, I, yeah, I, good on the Mets and good on you for predicting they would add a catcher. It wasn't the right. There wasn't the right guy. You oh, had them yeah. getting Murphy, but you had them getting a catcher, and they did. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at what what Cohen is doing, and and his and Billy Epler, and you know, they're they're just trying to build a juggernaut, and they're spending money right and left to do it, right? And so they're just going for it, you know. And so, and why not? Because you know, I read somewhere that Cohen's net worth this year increased by another three point eight billion. So like he doesn't care about eight million here or there. He just doesn't. It is total couch cushion change. So like fine. Yeah, I'm a, I love to see it. And so that has a ripple effect. So now they're trying to offload McCann, and I don't know if anybody's going to take McCann, and they may just eat the money and, and release him, and that's fine because they don't care about the money. So they just care about the roster upgrade. So good for them. For sure. All right, that does it as far as news and everything goes. Uh, do you have any last updates or anything before we call um, this an episode? Yeah, so just a minor point. So you might have seen, if you look at our trade uh, simulator, there's some, you know, I'm, I personally try to make sure that we are factoring in inflation and market conditions at all times. So um, a couple of weeks ago when we saw the market heating up, we did make some updates in terms of inflation. Um, and then there's a second sort of step to correlate to the market, which is basically uh, kind of positional need. So the shortstop's all the big four free agent shortstops are gone, right? But there's still several teams who need a shortstop. Does that make Ahmed Rosario a little bit more valuable? So you'll see him go up a tick, you know, like little situations like that where there's teams in need, you know, and the, if you look at the market as a whole, like, yeah, I could see Ahmed going a little bit more. Yes, it's a little bit speculative, but it's also based on reality. So just a few very, very minor changes like that based on the, the market profile. Cool. Thanks for the update there. Uh, but otherwise, I think that'll do it. Um, I'm not sure if we'll... I mean, I know we won't be back next weekend. That'll be Christmas mm -hmm. weekend. Merry Christmas to all who celebrate. Mm -hmm. Weekend after that will be New Year's, so I'm assuming we probably won't be back then either. Uh, so it might be three weeks until our next episode. We will keep you all posted, and uh, I'm sure we'll still have some content coming out on the Definitely. site over these next few weeks. So stay tuned. Um, but yeah. Otherwise, I think that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a few weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the off season. Happy holidays. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh. Happy holidays to you and yours. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy Absolutely. See you guys.